Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the teams Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host on this show is one very forceful guy. He's the one, the only, Dan Z, the brains behind Coffee with Kenobi, which has been entertaining and informing Star Wars fans since 2013? That is right. May of 2013 is when our first show dropped. It took us about 22 hours to record 20 minutes. <laughs> We've come a long yes. way since then. We, we oh. learned on the fly. I appreciate the 22 hours to 22 minutes podcast thing, <laughs> especially when most of your equipment is made out of folding chairs and coat hangers. Which That's like exactly right. This end. Mm-hmm. you got to stand on your pinky toe and stuff. There you go. Well, anyway, I, I raise a glass to that accomplishment, Dan. Though starting in 2019, you and I will be able to drink something a little stronger than a latte when we journey to Black Spire Outpost. Now, did you see the story that broke, I think it was the tail end of August, that Oga's Canteen? I think that is right, yeah. Okay, and, and if I understand correctly, this is located in the Smuggler's Alley section of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, a massive theme park world within a world that the Imagineers are building at Disneyland Park in Anaheim and at Disney Hollywood Studios theme park at the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando. But the big news that Oga's Canteen will be serving alcohol to guests 18 years or older who uh, frequent this establishment. Now, we kind of knew this was coming, didn't we? Or... Yeah, I mean, having alcohol at Disney was, was... I remember when I worked there in the in the mid-90s, I think, if memory serves, the Magic Kingdom was the only place at the time where you couldn't get alcohol in Orlando. Does that sound right to you? But everywhere else, of course you could at Epcot because you could drink around the world. As some of my as some of my roommates were apt to do, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, this yeah. this is cool. I mean, it's a cantina that just is a natural. Well, yeah, it, it, now you're right. My understanding is they can serve alcohol after hours at private parties. I mean, if a corporate mm-hmm. group buys out the park, that sort of thing. But I, I guess the big thing, you know, or the thing that seemed to make the headlines was the fact that this was the first time that you could buy alcohol at Disneyland Park in Anaheim, which, to be honest, isn't entirely true. Even as far back as 55, if you were a sponsor, or more to the point, you were a friend of Walt's, you could get a beer, wine, and spirits at Disneyland. You just had to know where to go. And depending on who you talk to, it was either called The Hideout or The Hideaway. It was a back room at the Red Wagon Inn. That's the place to have a, a back room, the Red Wagon Inn. Yeah, well, I just think that's like a Western. Well, that's it exactly. It was, it was sponsored by Swift Meats. They were an early, early sponsor of Disneyland. And Walt just wanted a place where he could take would-be sponsors or friends. And, and Walt was would liked his cocktails. I mean, he wasn't a big drinker. His idea, at the end of the day, he always enjoyed having a scotch mist, which... His nurse, Hazel, always used to describe as more water than scotch, but Walt liked to tipple now and then. But yeah, this this was in operation through 65 at the park, and then the Red Wagon Inn went down for a $1.7 million redo, which, to put that in perspective, when Walt built Disneyland in 55, he spent $17 million on the whole park, so... Ten years later, this place is such a success, he can afford to spend a tenth of what he spent on the whole theme park on redoing a one restaurant. 
But yeah, you could get drinks there, or likewise, starting in May of 67, again, if you knew the secret handshake and could get up into Club 33, you could drink there. But Oga's now, this is going to be a place where members of the general public can kick back a drink. And have we heard the blue milk and the green, whatever it was that Luke drank from that sea cow. Yeah. We haven't heard if those are alcoholic yet, have we? Or For some reason, I have in my mind that they're going to have a Shirley Temple version and a, and a non-Shirley Temple version. That's that's the way I always understood it. Okay. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it just, the, just the idea of being able to mosey into there with the, the Max Rebo band or, this, or the, the figure and Dar and the modal nodes playing the cantina theme. It just seems like... Something people are going to want to do. Oh, speaking of, of entertainment, though, some really sharp-eyed folks who were looking at the concept art that was released mm-hmm. for Oga noticed that this is going to be the cantina where Rex winds up. This is where, after his days of flying the Star Speeders 3000, he got retired to and is, is now working as a DJ. That's right. Paul Rubin's back for this, too, right? That's my understanding. I, I've been trying to get that confirmed, and... And of course, when people knock back a few, sometimes they like to play cards, which brings us to our next story. And I have to credit my co-host of Disney Dish, Len Testa. He's the one who who came across this trademark application that Disney put in. Disney has decided to trademark this card game. Am I pronouncing it right? Sabak? Sabak. Sabak. Okay. It's a story that we saw in... Solo, a Star Wars story true, is is that how Han actually did win the Millennium Falcon, playing a, a game of Sabacc with Lando? Yes, against Lando, that's right. There was there was always, uh, it was an illusion, I believe, in one of the novels, mm-hmm. uh, one of the novelizations that he had played Sabacc, mm-hmm. and he that's how he won the Falcon from Lando. And they kind of allude to that on Cloud City when they meet, mm-hmm. but then we get to actually see that play out in Solo, a Star Wars story. Yeah, Sabacc has got a long history in uh, in fandom to be sure in fact i've got a couple of decks myself mm, okay you'll have to teach from various places i got one from celebration anaheim it was a giveaway mm-hmm. that starwars.com was doing uh and i got another a few from lucasfilm's gift shop over the years that they make just for in you know internally and then when solo came out hasbro had a game called the han solo card game they wouldn't call it sabacc because there was uh, some questions about there was a lawsuit going on, I guess. Um, so they weren't they weren't calling it Sabak, but it was Sabak. It was labeled Sabak. It came with the dice. It uh, very clearly had the images that they used in it. There was an episode of Star Wars Rebels season, I believe it was season one, called Idiot's Array, which is the name of the perfect hand you can get in Sabak. Mm-hmm. And so, and they showed Lando playing this game against Zeb. Mm-hmm. And so then. Those are the cards that we knew what they look like, and so that's what the deck looks like from from Hasbro. That's more about Sabacc than you probably ever wanted no, to know. No, I see. Uh, now, there's where you're wrong, because my understanding is the reason that Disney trademarked this thing, that this game, is that they're looking to sell Sabacc cards in the bazaar at Black Spire Outpost. Wow. What better souvenir, especially, or more to the point if you're... You're headed in the bar and looking for something to do. Bring your Sabacc cards along and see if you can win a couple of hands and get somebody to pay for your drinks. Oh, and, and they probably would do that. And by the way, if you do that, your goal is to get 23 or negative 23. Those are perfect Jeez. hands. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> Keep that You're in really going to have to help me out here. Maybe I can pick up a few tips by rewatching and rewatching Solo, A Star Wars Story. Now, speaking of which, I guess Solo, A Star Wars Story has been available 
for purchase, the digital HD version, uh, while, what is it, the Blu-ray and DVD version hits store shelves on September 25th? That's right, and I, I have my review copy here right in Ooh, front of me. Okay. Have we looked at... the go- It's a gorgeous-looking disc. I mean, it's been out on digital since the mm-hmm. 15th. It's really nice. The Blu-ray is, is a gorgeous image for sure. Have we looked at the deleted scenes yet? I have not gotten a chance to. I plan on having talking about it in detail when we record our next show. Okay. But the things I've seen online about them and some of the people that I talk to regularly from fandom are glowing about them. I guess there's a round table uh, that has some of the cast and Ron Howard that is just magnificent. Same thing. I've got my review copy sitting here, still wrapped in its cellophane. You're right. Next show, we'll, yep. we'll watch and we'll we'll discuss. And Perfect. I wonder, is as part of the round table, they'll have... Jonathan Kasdan, who, of course, uh, son of writer of uh, Lost Ark and uh, Empire Strike Back. Lawrence Kasdan, of course, also his dad's co-writer on the screenplay for uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story. I, I was kind of sad, though, to see he was on Twitter recently saying that he doubts that we're going to get a sequel to Solo produced anytime soon, largely on the back of uh, how poorly this film did overseas. I saw that. he He's a cool guy. I got to talk to him at the press junket for Solo, A Star Wars Story mm-hmm. back in May. And he, he's he's a smart person. He, as you know, I think we've talked about this before, but he's writing the script for the next Indiana mm-hmm. Jones film. So, so that's a, obviously a, a lot of uh, Sabat credits in his favor. He also released, what was it, 20, 25 pages? Does that sound right? Of notes that they had kind of behind-the-scenes stuff in Easter eggs for Solo, A Star Wars Ooh, Story. Okay. That he released on Twitter. Oh, it's gold. It's absolute okay, I gold. I definitely. I, and I have a feeling that because of him slowly earning kind of his place in fandom, and I'm sure Blu-ray sales and, and digital downloads will be excellent, I bet we'll see a sequel sooner well, rather than later. Something. We're in this weird space right now, especially with Disney launching its its streaming service next year. In fact, did, did you see the story that just broke yesterday about how well, among the things that are going to get up and running on the streaming service are limited series built around the Marvel characters no. of Loki and the Scarlet Witch. And this isn't like, and we're going to get, you know, Joe Blow from Idaho to play, uh, you know, Loki. This is Tom Hiddleston coming back to play the character. Wow. And and Elizabeth Olsen coming back to play the Scarlet Witch. And you have to assume that if that's what they're doing in the Marvel Universe, what are we going to get Star Wars side? I mean, that also shows that they're willing to pay for their actors, too. Oh, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think in this age of so many people who do film and television and some of the more ambitious limited series that are out there, that I think there's less an onus for a film star to come do television. And, and more to the point, Disney wants to stress right off the top that the stuff that they're doing over for Disney Play, by the way, that's the name of the streaming service, they want people to think we could release this stuff theatrically if we wanted to. That's the level of quality. But even so, I, I'm a little sad that we... We won't get to see, according to, to Jonathan, we won't get to see a, the solo sequel anytime soon. But but that doesn't mean that we aren't going to see Han and Chewie sometime in the next year or so. Talking with friends who are working on Star Wars Resistance, the new animated series. And By the way, Dan, is, is the father of young children... Towers Resistance, you and I both know, is the, the new animated series that's Lucasfilm mm-hmm. Animation is skewing toward younger younger kids. So if this is intended for a younger audience, 
why then is the premiere of the show being shown on the <laughs> Disney Channel a on Sunday night at ten o'clock at night? What child <laughs> who's going to be up to watch this? Not me, because I'm the one who has to get him up and get him ready for school the next day. I mean, it sounds like this is designed by people who don't have small kids at home. Yeah. Isn't that ironic? I mean, because it, it certainly is being mm. billed, like you said, as something that younger audiences can gravitate towards and jump into feet first right off the bat, which I think is wonderful. My son's first real foray into Star Wars was Forces of Destiny. Mm. He's since seen the original trilogy. In fact, I just showed him Return of the Jedi oh. over the weekend, and mm-hmm. he loved it. He loves the Ewoks, mm-hmm. loves the whole thing, but this is something that after I see the pilot, I'm I'm really hoping it will be as advertised, because I would love for, to bring him in, but not at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday. You and I are both kind of revealing our age here, because we're thinking like terrestrial television people, whereas you know, <laughs> the, 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 my daughter and your son and such, they're an entirely different generation. They watch television on their phones, and there's the Disney app. And In fact, as I understand it, if you watch the premiere using the Disney app, they then make it possible for you to see the, immediately see the next two episodes of the show. So yeah, maybe oh, really? it's just the 10 o'clock version is for us old farts. It could be. That's what they did for Rebels the first season. They would always show you, if you had the app, you could... You could see it the first two episodes, whereas everybody else had to wait the, for a week for the next episode. Anyway, to circle back to the Han and Chewie news. Now, re- remember, yeah. the conceit of Star Wars Resistance is that this show is set before all of the events we saw in, in Star Wars Episode Eight: The Force Awakens. What that means is that uh, General Organa is still trying to determine how big a threat the First Order is. So this is why she has Poe Dameron recruit Kazuda Ziona. They call him Kaz for Sounds short. Right I'm to sticking me. with Kaz. But he's a talented young pilot, who, yeah. and he's going to serve as the central character of the show. And his job, Poe gives him an assignment to spy on the First Order. In order to do this, Kaz gets assigned to the Colossus, which is this massive refueling station that's located on an ocean world in, in the Outer Rim Territories. The idea that all sorts of pilots bring their ships to the Colossus to be refueled. So if that's the case, supposedly over what's planned as the four-year run of this show, I guess it was originally planned for season one, might get now get pumped to season two. Ahana Chewie will show up for a little gas and grab. Likewise, Lando Calrissian is supposed to come through at some point. Not only that, but Dave loves the characters that he helped get up out of the ground. So look for Hera Siladola from... Uh, Sindula. Sindula. Yeah. Uh, from Star Wars Rubber and like, so likewise uh, Ahsoka Tana from uh, Clone Wars. Evidently, the mm-hmm. notion was going into the show. He wanted Resistance to comfortably accommodate characters from both the Star Wars films and the TV shows. If you talk with the people at Disney Concerned Products and Interactive Media... They're not really all that excited that Han and Chewie are going to show up on the show. What they love about Resistance is the hotshot group of pilots that are supposed to protect this refueling station. Because that means they have all sorts of vehicles that Disney Consumer Products can then turn into things that they can sell to kids as well as Star Wars collectors. And speaking of toys, when Dan and I get back from the break... We're going to talk about this spectacular Netflix original series, The Toys That Made Us. And there's an, the debut episode of this series is something that every Star Wars fan has to see. So uh, hang in there. We'll be right back. Hey. 
we're back. Now, Dan, you have seen the show. We were talking about this off air before we got started tonight, right? Yeah, to- the toys that made us. I did. I naturally, I heard that they were doing a toy documentary and they were going to cover the Star Wars Kenner Star Wars line. So I had to do that, and mm-hmm. I liked it so well. I saw three of the first four episodes of season one, and I think they're a blast. They're informative. They're entertaining. Very insightful too. Plus, I mean, you, I just love the imagery uh, that they put up there. Anyway, it's it's great. Oh, it's no, a great show. Uh, to give you folks a little background, this show dropped December twenty second, two thousand seventeen. And again, given that it's built all around toys, just before Christmas, this was a present for all of us. So, but season one, very first episode was about Star Wars. Then season uh, episode two was Barbie, He Man, and final episode of, of season one was Yeah Joe. Such a big success. Second season dropped May of this year. We got a episode around the Star Trek toy line, uh, line about Transformers, Lego, and Hello Kitty. Which, again, I'm almost startled at how entertaining the history of Hello Kitty was. The fact that that whole storyline rose out of, or that whole toy line came out of the fact that Sanrio just did not want to pay a licensing fee to Charles Schultz to use Snoopy. Anyway, uh, season three just got announced this past July at Comic-Con, and we don't have an air date on these ones yet, but they'll cover Power Rangers, Wrestling Toys, My Little Pony, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I just have to say up front, uh, before we get started in-depth talking about the Star Wars episode, which kicked off the whole uh, series here, Brian Folkweiss, Robert Stern, Cisco Henson, in. Carette and Edwin Zane, they're the folks who executive produced this thing. And Tom Cern does double duty here as the director of the show. They've done such a great job. But again, given this is the looking at Lucasfilm show, what's great is they chose Star Wars as their debut episode because honestly, the seismic impact that this toy line had when it dropped in 1978, it still, still mm-hmm. to this day, reverberates. It's worth noting that while the Star Wars films to date have earned $7 billion at the box office worldwide, the Star Wars toys have sold twice that amount, Dan. Oh, yeah. They, they certainly have. I, I do a cut, some, some speaking engagements, and one of the things we talk about is the impact of Star Wars on culture and financially, of course, it is it's gigantic. I mean, when the original mm-hmm. when a New Hope came out in seventy seven, it changed the way movies were made, marketed, and, and sort of ingested. And and these toys had such a gigantic, gigantic impact. And of course, you know about how Lucas took his contract to make sure that he got all of the merchandising rights and and he waived his director's fee and that ended up working out rather well for him well yeah no but it's interesting that point out as part of the 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 toys that made us that george over time began to sort of rethink that And, and largely that came because normally when you're doing licensing for a motion picture two years out you're reaching out to toy companies and in the case of star wars because George believed he had something really, really special. He he refused to let images of again, the Millennium Falcon, the TIE Fighters, the Landspeeder out there because he was worried about, A, them getting ripped off. or So he, they only started approaching company, 26 only started approaching company three months ahead of the release of the film. As a direct result, Mattel, Hasbro, Parker Brothers, Ideal, all turned them down. 
just sort of like looked at it and was like, not enough time, not interesting. And more to the point, it, as you mentioned, that back then, uh, toy lines that keyed off of movies were, were really kind of rare. Uh, it was mostly television, you know, things like The Six Million Dollar Man or that sort of thing. So only Kenner, which at that time, it was a relatively minor player in the toy industry. I mean, the biggest sellers that this Cincinnati-based company had prior to Star Wars were Spirograph and the Easy Bake Oven. But they're the ones who took a flyer in this film. And Dan, I'm going to assume, given the number of Star Wars events you've been to over the years, you've at some point run into Jim Swearingen? I have not run into Jim Swearingen. I'm definitely aware of him, but I have not had the... And I haven't got the chance to do that. I would sure love to, because I would love to pick his brain, because he's he's went in on it from the, from the ground floor. I think he's the one who also designed the Kenner Millennium Falcon, which is one of the the best models that's been done in any Star Wars collectible. Jim was Kenner's lead designer at the time, but more to the point, he was a sci-fi fan, and mm-hmm. you know, and he knew George Lucas because, or he knew Lucas's name, uh, because he's in THX1138 when Warner Brothers released it back in '71. So when Dave Akuda, you know, Swearingen's boss, comes to the office one day in the spring of 76, or the spring of 77, with, with the script to Star Wars and said, anybody want to take a look at this? Jim volunteers. He takes the script home. He reads it, and the next day he comes to the office blithering about, oh, my God, this is so great. We have to make these toys. And from there, well, again, I, I'm sure you know this story. You know, Bernie Lumen, the, the head of Kenner, he... He decides to take a flyer on this thing, and but you know they have no time to prep anything to show Fox. So, as they explain in this episode of the Toys That Made Us, the prototype toys that they showed the 20th Century Fox executives were actually repurposed truck drivers from a play school set. Had you heard this? And I know that the most of the stuff I know from that particular thing, mm-hmm. I learned from this documentary. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the story that Akuda tells about how, what, they're doing the Jawas and he can't, you know, he knows they need cloaks, but he can't find the, the <laughs> yes. right fabric. And then he realizes, well, wait a minute, I'm wearing brown socks. And he cuts the toe <laughs> off of his own sock and and uses that. Anyway, to, to get back to what we were talking about earlier about Lucas being so smart about waving his director fee and keeping that toy hanging out to the, the toy rights. But here's the thing, because it was so late in the game, Kenner was able to cut an amazing deal with Lucas and 20th Century Fox. Basically, as they explained in this episode of The Toys That Made Us, of every dollar that was spent on a Star Wars toy, Lucas and 20th Century Fox got a nickel that they then split, and Kenner got to keep the other 95 cents. And the other thing that, that just astounds me this was basically a handshake deal. They only had a deal memo for the first two years I mean, because things were moving so fast they had to rush to get the toys out. And then there was this huge, you know, reaction to the toys in the, the spring of 78. And then that great thing where they sold the box that didn't have any toys in it. Yes, the early bird certificate. And I, I had a chance to buy that. I still remember, this is like my Kennedy moment, I remember getting a chance to buy that box in the mm-hmm. aisle and my dad saying, you don't need that. It doesn't have any toys inside it. I said, well, they're going to mail it to me. I said, yeah, but why don't you just wait till they have the toys in the store? Uh-huh. Well, Thanks, Dad. Well, you know, <laughs> no, no. He's your parent. He loves you. I mean, it just, it, <laughs> it, it, it seemed like a bad deal at the time, you know. And 
and speaking of bad deals, how how about all those kids who mailed it then got the Boba Fett that wouldn't fire a rocket? It large, yeah, I was one be- of them. Were you really? Yeah, I, I was one of the original. I got the original mailing thing, but and it, it did say on the back the the rocket firing thing, and I remember thinking, well, mine was must just not work. But I know for a fact that that they never had one. That was a prototype. And they, no, no one ever had one of those. Well, see, now that's the thing, though. Though they do show as part of this. And in fact, I'm saying this right up front that this is one of these moments when I'm truly jealous of what Dan has gotten to do. Because one of the things they do over the course of this this episode is they take you to mm-hmm. Rancho Obi-Wan, where Stephen Sansweet has his amazing collection of Star Wars memorabilia and toys, which actually include two of the prototypes of four, this Boba Fett figure that actually did, you know, would have been able to fire, you know, the rocket and we'd all have them today if that kid hadn't <laughs> choked on the rocket from the uh, that's what right. That's right. I remember that so right? well. I'm, I remember that when that was even in the news. But I've seen I've seen the prototype because I've been to Ranch Obi Wan on two different occasions. I'm actually going to go back to their annual Ranch Obi Wan Gala. It's on October 20th in Petaluma, California. So I'll be going back for a third time, and I'm very much looking forward to that. That place. I mean, it's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's largest Star Wars collection. And it's it's amazing. You can just get lost in there, just with the nostalgia factor and all the beautiful things he's got. He's got a lot of actual license stuff that's come out. He's got a lot of the prototypes, like the Boba Fett rocket firing Boba Fett thing that we were just talking about that I've gotten to see. He's got a ton of things that fans have made for him. You would you love it. We got to get you to one of these galas sometime. You would you'd think it was great. Oh, I'd, I'd love to go. I, based on just what they show of Steve, I love his attitude. That in fact, these are toys. Mm-hmm. These are things to be played with. I mean, yes, they are you know on shelves, and some of them are behind glass doors and locked cases, but they're still toys. And you know, he still obviously gets like a lot of joy from not only the legitimate thing, but he he seemed to get almost more pleasure in this documentary out of the knockoffs, the Star Wars yes. toys. This show is just great fun to watch. If only for the bends and twists in the stories that I never knew about, like the terms of the Kenner deal. Basically, they had the rights to Star Wars toys forever, but with the understanding that they could retain the rights forever if, on an annual basis, they either generated, what, $10,000 in Star Wars royalties or just turned around and cut a check for $10,000 and sent it to Lucasfilm? Is, is Yeah, that's, that's the way I always understood it. It's a, quite an interesting little uh, write-up, isn't it? So here's Hasbro buys Kenner in 1991 and somehow between 1991 and 1994 somebody forgets to send a $10,000 check to me that's just so mind-blowing it really is they make a point in the thing uh, the documentary about you know the rights you know revert to to Lucasfilm and and Fox and November of 1994 here's George sitting down to write you know Phantom Menace and it's like coincidence (laughs) I don't know but boy, the, the then they go to the next phase of the, the deal and they talk about how, you know, this time around, George, who evidently came to eventually describe the, the license, the original licensing deal with Kenner is the stupidest deal that had, had ever been cut in Hollywood history. The next time around, when it came to, to the toy rights, he wasn't kidding around. They started off, what, they pitted Mattel, Galoob, and Playmates mm-hmm. against one another. 
And I want to say it's George Hessenfield, Hessenfield, who's the head of Hasbro. And he's like, whatever it costs, we have to get the Star Wars toys rights back. They end up cutting the most expensive toy licensing deal in history. And under the terms of the deal, George, instead of splitting a nickel with Fox, now gets 18 cents out of every dollar that's spent on, on Star Wars Which is toys. a substantial chunk of change. Absolutely. And, and, and the other thing that uh, just kind of blew my mind is that supposedly Hasbro did this without having read the script of Phantom Menace. They, they went into this deal blind. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of why there were four, and for that very first film, there were four Jar Jar action figures and a plush and a... Uh, a 12-inch tall doll, even a jar. Listen, I, I have a Pizza Hut box upstairs in my attic that still has some very, very faint pizza mm. stains on it with Jar Jar's face on it. Wow. Yeah. Quick side <laughs> note here. Did you see that story back in July where Ahmed Best, he's the actor who voiced Jar Jar Banks and did the you motion know, capture, did the yeah. live stand-in stuff? Did you see where he was talking about how he actually contemplated suicide on the back of... The, the, the fan backlash to, 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 to that character? I knew that it was bad. I didn't know it was that bad. I don't know that any of us knew it was that bad. And this that is the extremely ugly side of fandom. And I even shuddered to say the word fandom because this that, that's not fandom. This is a man who got a chance to be in a Star Wars film and be the first ever person to be able to play the role of the first ever CG, all CGI character that's a main character that walks and mm-hmm. talks there isn't anyone who is even remotely interested in Star Wars or acting that would have passed on this role. And the way he was treated and, and assaulted, you know, verbally for this, I think is insane. And if anyone has ever seen The Phantom Menace with children, you know, as I do with my mm-hmm. kids, they think Jar Jar Banks is the three stooges wrapped up in the one. They laugh, they giggle. I've never met a student, and, you know, I've been teaching for 13 years. I would say about 85% of my students, the ones that haven't been probably influenced by their parents, tell me they love Jar Jar and they think he's hilarious. And, and that was important. I mean, did, didn't George say at Celebration Orlando that Star Wars was made for 12-year-olds? I'm pretty sure he yeah, said that, and, yeah. and, that and, and, and that just proves it. George has also said several times that the inspiration for Jar Jar is Goofy, the Disney character, which... Brings me to, I guess, the somewhat problematic question. Would Jar Jar have been better accepted with a different voice? Was it just sort of the pigeon talk? Is this one of these situations where if he were redubbed with a different voice, people would be that much more likely to accept I it? I don't know. I mean, there were, there were, obviously there's sort of a Rastafarian thing, but he came from a, from an underwater, Utoganga is the name of the, the underwater city that he... Mm-hmm. was from and i don't know i mean didn't he say that thing about he based Jar Jar on goofy when he was became a part of the disney hall of fame or whatever they called it at the d23 expo yes yes there yeah. we go there we go all right so maybe he was playing to the crowd maybe but may, but it works yeah but it works i don't know anyway getting back to the toys made us look I, I know we talked a lot about this star wars episode but but honestly, I, I've watched a number of the, the other episodes of season one and two of this uh, Netflix original. And to be honest, it's a G.I. Joe one. And I know, you know, you're a big fan of G.I. Joe. I love man. it. I love, it's my favorite toy line of all time. 
That was great fun. And likewise, the He-Man Masters of the Universe episode. How about that guy that created Skeletor? He, how he's sort of this very cantankerous, aggressive guy. But boy, was he entertaining. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> really entertaining. Absolutely. Get out so. So I honestly learned so much from from watching yes. this particular episode. Of, it just kind of blew my mind the stat they threw out there that at one point every kid in America on average had ten Star Wars action figures. Oh yeah. Well, look, folks, do yourself a favor. If you haven't yet seen the toys that made us, the, again, there's this Netflix original series that celebrates those. As this, their theme song goes, those molded little figures that gave us big dreams. Do yourself a favor and seek it out. You, you'll be glad that you did. You do know that while we're recording, uh, I'm here in my studio, and I'm looking up on my wall, and I have these very large picture frame Ikea shelves, and I've got every single Kenner Star Wars action figure looking at me right now while oh we're talking about God. this. I'll All have right. to send you a picture. All right. You you have to send me. Now, here's the big question, though. It's, we're looking at this lineup of figure. Do we have any Willow figures up there? I do not have any Willow figures, but I know we've got some Willow to talk about. Yeah, well, first things first, given that we just came out of talking about toys and that sort of thing, um, it might be appropriate to talk a little bit about the licensing of Ron Howard's first film for for Lucasfilm, which, again, was a really big deal. I mean, back in in May of 88, this thing bowed in a thousand uh, cinemas, which... I know today in our age where something like Infinity Wars will be out in 4,000 cinemas, but that was a really, really wide release at that point. More to the point, remember, this is George Lucas, who's still smarting from what he's come to believe is a, a poor deal for the Star Wars licensing. So when it came time for Willow, he really put the thumbscrews to the more than 30 companies who, who acquired licensing rights to Willow. Every one of them who wanted to be part of this MGM release wound up paying up front anywhere from 100000 to $1 million, which obviously is a big step up from that $10,000 a year guarantee that Kenner had to make to 20th Century Fox in that deal memo. And well, yeah, I mean, I'm no math major, but that that's a significant jump. <laughs> <laughs> that it is, that it is. So who who agrees to be part of the, the Willow licensing juggernaut? Virgin Records, for one. They they pay a six-figure advance for the rights to sell the Willow soundtrack. And, and their CEO did this after just seeing three minutes of footage that he got shown months before it made it into theaters. Likewise, Disney puts a bid in and wins the rights to release the Storyteller uh, version of the the Willow album. They put that out through their Buena Vista Records, which you probably know. uh, They did all of the Star Wars Storyteller albums as well. And meanwhile, on the Toy Into Things Tonka, which Hasbro had bought. In fact, Tonka, here's how how weird things the toy industry got in the late 80s, early 90s. Tonka at this point had already purchased Kenner. Hasbro then would turn around. The way Hasbro got a hold of Kenner is in 1991, they bought Tonka, which owned Kenner. So you had Tonka basically through Kenner doing the Willow action figures, and Parker Brothers did all the board games. And meanwhile, you had all these giant other companies, brands like Kraft Food and Wendy's and Quaker Oats and Ziploc bags agree to to mount these nationwide promotions for for Willow with the hope that by being associated with this Lucasfilm production, that would then boost consumers' interest in their brands. You also saw Kmart and Walden Books and Toys R Us and Tower Records getting in on this. And I have to tell you, Dan, 
some of the stuff now, some of the catchphrases in hindsight are, wow, really? You guys believe that? I mean, take for example, Kraft circulated the Cheese Fest 1988 promotion. And (laughs) this is how they described Willow. They said, imagine something even bigger than Star Wars or Indiana Jones. Craft and Willow, a movie tie-in like nothing you've ever seen before. Craft and the world's best-known filmmaker move product like you've never seen. Craft and Willow, build traffic like you've never seen before. Stuff like Quaker Oats puts the magic of Willow on your table, or successes <laughs> in the bag with Ziploc and Willow. And that is pretty clever, I will say. Successes yeah, in, I yeah, like that. I mean, it just... Unfortunately, as we know from what happened at the box office, success wasn't exactly in the bag for Willow, but tell you what we'll get into more about what went wrong with ron howard's first film for lucasfilm and on an upcoming edition of the, this podcast yeah i'd like to I, I know that it's got as you know willow has a huge cult following to this day and i, I know recently at lucasfilm they had they had a willow screening and they went into the archives and they put a number of uh willow merchandise the stuff we're talking about all over these tables for everyone to look at and they even had the little the box plastic costume with the little mask with the little thin string that goes around you can and you're sweating through the little nose holes and you know try when you're wearing these old costumes and uh, it looked like everybody there had an absolute blast i don't know what what the uh image was like i mean it was shown in lucasfilm so it, it, that screen and that sound system is about as good as you'll ever find but i bet that was a huge thrill for people i mean i i saw willow of course but I still have only seen it once, and it was in theaters. And that was mm-hmm. obviously a while ago. Though one wonders if you'll be returning to a theater sometime soon to, to see a bit more Willow. Because it's so weird to live in an age where it's over Twitter. But Ron Howard mentioned back in May while they were doing press for Solo, a fan reached out via Twitter and said, More Willow, please. And Ron responded with this message. We are seriously exploring Willow 2 with Lucasfilm fingers crossed and he goes on to say i don't want to give too much away but there's talk of uh, it wouldn't necessarily be willow 2 but it would focus a lot on the laura dannon though willow the character would be significantly involved in the story so that was a couple of months ago and obviously again then the heels of what happened with solo and I would dearly love to see them approach this idea. More to the point, what a natural for Disney Play, the streaming service we, we talked about earlier in the show. That might be where you would probably see it. And, and I think they should call it Willow 2 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, please send the hate mail to, to Dan Zare, you know. Um, now I, I, With, when you're doing the worm, yes. Yes. Uh, and now speaking of which, Dan... When people aren't listening to us yammer here at looking at Lucasfilm, where else can they find you? You can find me each and every week on Coffee with Kenobi everywhere. You can listen to podcasts. You can listen to it through Blog Talk Radio's website. And you can find my writing there as well as at StarWars.com where I am an official blogger. And I've been doing a lot of work recently for IGN. Very cool. Okay, on my side of the fence, again, if you go to... The Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. What have we got now? We've got, obviously, looking at Lucasfilm. we got Disney Dish. we got the Marvel Us Disney show. We've got our Universal Joint. And we're looking to do some stuff about the Muppets and some of the fun stuff Disney Consumer Products is up to. But that's further on down the line. And, and before those get on the air, we're going to be back 
with a brand new looking at Lucasfilm. So till then, folks, on behalf of Dan Z, I want to thank you for listening and we'll talk again soon. Till then, take care, okay? Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.